Welcome to the Dublin City Public Libraries and Archive podcast. In this episode, the life of the 19th century mathematician and poet William Rowan Hamilton is told through a sequence of sonnets by poet Iggy McGovern and friends Paula Murphy and Noel Duffy, recorded in front of a live audience at Pierce Street Library on the 26th of February 2015 as part of the Mind Yourself programme. Well, thanks, Phil, and uh, thank you all for uh, turning out on a chilly evening. Um, as uh, Phil says, I'm going to uh, present to you uh, sort of a quick gallop through his life uh, in terms of the, some of the sonnets that are contained in this book. There are 64 of them, but we're not going to burden you with 64 sonnets. I'm joined tonight by uh, my two, two friends, um, and they're going to read some of the sonnets. Apart from the fact that I'm in poor voice, I thought it's always a good idea to kind of break the evening into a different different sound of, of the voice. They are uh, here at the front row, uh, Paula Murphy, and Paula is a, a very uh, important uh, biologist, and, uh, but physicist, uh, uh, physicists are terrified of biologists, really, we really are. Uh, so Paula is going to basically take the uh, female leads in, in tonight's uh, event. Uh, and then on the other hand I have uh, uh, over here beside is uh, Noel Duffy. And Noel is a physicist, was a physicist, uh, and I had the pleasure of teaching him. Um, I don't know whether the pleasure was mutual, but uh, he's, he's, never, he's never done anything to suggest otherwise. Uh, but Noel has made a, a, a career for himself as a poet and obviously with someone with a physics background, uh, his poetry to me is, I think, quite exceptional and quite very, very interesting. And in fact, what we're going to do first of all, before we start uh, proper, is to ask uh, Noel to read one of his own poems, uh, not only to, to set the scene for us, uh, but uh, because he's going to read a poem about science, uh, but also to allow us to rehearse this business of getting up and getting down off the podium without making too much of a mess. Given that the, the nature of Iggy's sequence, marvellous sequence, I have to say, uh, about William Ron Hamilton, uh, is the sonnet form, I thought I'd just read a short poem about science, um, and perhaps to go back to the beginning of it. And this poem is simply called Apple, and I hope you can construe its meaning. So here we go, Apple. Red, of course, the colour of blood, shining and smooth, its form perfected and round. An emblem of the human mind, nestled up there among the leaves, innocent of its, sway, of its fate, swaying in a green dream about to waken. Ripe and waiting for the final nudge, the soft slap of the breeze, to fall down to the ground with a thud beside the place he sits to start again the ancient act of the naming of parts. So to the uh, sonnet, thanks. <laughs> to the to the sonnets. Um, so um, uh, basically, uh, this is about William Rowan Hamilton, uh, Ireland's best ever, um, I think ever, ever, probably, mathematician. And um, 19th century, 1805 to uh, 1865. And uh, 
He's uh, an interesting man. Interesting man. I'm going to start with um, just by putting up basic, basic dates. This is what you get in a sort of the official biography. Uh, he was born in Dominic Street on the north side in uh, August 1805, and he died at his home and workplace, Dunsink Observatory, out on the west of the city, uh, in September 1865. So he died the same year as uh, Yeats was born, and there's that sense. And I knew that number was kind of mm -hmm. in my head. Yep, exactly, and it's a sense of um, that somehow the genius is sort of you know conserved or passed on. Because if Yeats was a genius, um, Hamilton most certainly was as well. He was, uh, had many uh, roles, Astronomer Royal of Ireland, Director of Dunsink Observatory, Professor of Astronomy at Trinity College, even though he was outside the walls, uh, and he was President of the Royal Irish Academy. But these, these uh, duties were not onerous, and so he had plenty of time to do mathematics, and that's what he did. And down at the very bottom there, there's a list of his, probably three of his great contributions. Now, this is not going to be about those contributions, because I'm more interested in the, uh, well, I'm equally interested in the bi real biography as opposed to the scientific biography. So, if we look at then at what those might be, well, he was a child prodigy, and uh, he had this enormous facility to to learn languages. He could learn uh, Latin and Greek and Hebrew, all sorts of strange languages. At the age of, at the age of uh, 10, he, he's supposed to have known at least 10 languages. Um, he was, uh, had interest in, some interest in mathematics, but he was more interested in classics when he was younger, and languages and things like that. Um, but he came to Trinity, and uh, of course was a star pupil. At that point, he got interested also in mathematics as well as classics. And so he was a kind of sort of a double performer at in Trinity. And so much so that they made him professor of astronomy while he was still technically an undergraduate. I don't think it was to just to save the money. <laughs> so uh, he quite, quite something. Um, he uh, wrote poetry, so that to me makes him extraordinarily interesting. Scientist who writes poetry. And he was friendly with uh, Wordsworth and Coleridge and people like that. Probably more importantly than any of those was that he had an obsession with a woman, a woman called Catherine Disney. He met her in his second year at Trinity, fell in love with her and her with him apparently, but of course uh, he had no money, a penniless student, and she was already promised to uh, an older man, uh, a minister in the established church, and her father made her marry the said minister, and they were both heartbroken uh, and expected to get over it. Neither of them ever got over it, and, uh, and all sorts of difficult situations throughout the years, including a suicide attempt, definite suicide attempt by Catherine, and a seeming suicide attempt by Hamilton himself as a young man. So, this obsession allied to, or the cause of, or whatever, uh, other difficulties, depression, alcohol abuse, uh, family difficulties, make him, in some sense, a kind of a very modern person. Although it's the 19th century, it seems to me that his life, his life should in some way be understood or 
at least that. Uh, <laughs> indeed it does, indeed it does. So, um, this, this is the sort of thing that I wanted to try and capture in, this, in the book. Uh, and so there are these sonnets, a series of 64 sonnets, and they are in the voices of people who knew him, who knew how to tell that story. Okay. So, if we just look now at this picture. This is by the artist Sean Keating. It shows uh, a woman and a man in a top hat uh, standing on the Royal Canal at a place called Broombridge. Uh, the train stops there now, briefly. <laughs> and uh, William Roy Hamilton and his wife were, uh, are, are the people who are depicted there. And they are shown out on a, for a walk, effectively. And it records an historical event in uh, October uh, 1843, when uh, they were walking into town, and uh, Hamilton, well, he should have been listening to what his wife was saying, was actually thinking about a mathematical problem. And what was the problem? Well, the problem is a kind of, a, it's a strange one. Some of you, if you, do, if you know a little bit of mathematics, there's something called complex numbers. You get a pair of numbers together, and they, they can do interesting things. He was trying to take it to the next level, which is triples, three numbers. And he'd been working on this for 10 years without success. And it suddenly struck him as he walked along the canal, I've been working with the wrong number. I should have been working with four numbers. And that's the birth of what are called quaternions. And it's probably the, the one piece of his work that everybody, well, lots of people would know and remember in some sense. And according to his own uh, uh, writings, as soon as he realised what he should have been working on, he jotted down the formula on the bridge. Yeah, and that's the formula supposed to be on the bridge, scratched on the wall. It's not clear that he did that. The only evidence that he, that he did it was he said he wrote to his son and said, I did this. But we've all written to our sons and daughters claiming all sorts of things. <laughs> so, so I don't know. And that's a plaque that's currently on the, the wall of the bridge commemorating this event, put up, put up there by uh, Eamon de Valera in uh, 1943. So that's the kind of the, the big sort of historical kind of uh, uh, idea involved. Okay. So he would go on then and spend the rest of his life uh, from 1843 through to 1865, working on these so-called quaternions. And they divided people. Not everybody thought they were any good at all. Some people thought they were absolutely the end of everything. They were wonderful. So there's a lot of uh, interest in that sort of uh, thing as well. Okay. So, uh, and you'll find as we go along, the, a couple of champions will appear for these. Now, what are they for? Well, nowadays, they're actually come into their own in two very strange sort of uh, ways. Uh, they're essentially, what they're really, really good at is, is efficiently calculating rota rotations in three, three dimensions. So bodies that are doing that. And so the most natural body that does that is this young lady here. 
Lorna Croft. I'm showing my age here, but basically <laughs> this is an early, an early uh, computer gaming uh, individual, cartoon individual, who has to do all those jumping around things. And this is done in large measure by quaternions. The other place that they're very useful, in the similar sort of vein, is in this area here, in space travel. And uh, that's Laura Croft on the left-hand side, and that's Buzz Aldrin <laughs> on the right-hand side. Uh, Buzz Aldrin came to Trinity College some years ago to, uh, to on the Grand Tour, and uh, was obviously, very obviously, bored out of his mind. If you've been to the moon, Trinity's not really going to <laughs> kind of do it for you. <laughs> but on the tour, he was taken into the, uh, the Long Room Library, and he spotted the bust of William Rowan Hamilton, and he suddenly became animated, and he loudly declared, this is the guy that got us home. You know, so, so Hamilton saved the day, indeed. So uh, I'm telling you about this in some sense, because of um, uh, the, it's a kind of a central sort of thing in the story of Hamilton, and, and it also allows me to make a few points as well. So, what are these points? Well, what's the t title of this book? It's A Mystic Dream of Four. Well, four, obviously, from Quaternions, but actually, four from a more like Mystic Dream of Four. It's the sort of title you'd expect to find in the mind-body-spirit of the library. Uh, so if it ever got into the mind-body-spirit in the bookshop, I might make a bit of money. <laughs> but, uh, and where does that come from? Well, it comes from a poem that Hamilton wrote himself about Quaternions. And that's the last four lines of the poem. Uh, he's comparing his Quaternions with a much older idea by Pythagoras so-called tetractus and uh, so he says gently he smiled he being god smiled to mark revive again in later age an occidental clime a dimly traced pythagorean lore a westward floating mystic dream of four so i rubbed i rubbed his line for the title but the idea that he wrote poetry wasn't just uh, something that he did in the evenings when things were a bit slack uh, that he really did believe that it was part of the business, that the business of mathematics, particularly in quaternions, poetry would have a central role in that. And so this is what he wrote. The quaternion was born as a curious offspring of a quaternion of parents, say of geometry, algebra, metaphysics, and poetry. So that's really, I suppose, what makes it interesting for me, the fact not just that he was a scientist who wrote poetry, but he thought in some way that those two seemingly opposite things were actually melded into one. So, the book then, because I haven't really said much about the book yet. The book has uh, then four sections, uh, named after geometry, algebra, metaphysics and poetry. And it has 16 sonnets in each section, so it has 64 because that's four by four by four. Uh, I would never have gotten away with four by four by four by four. <laughs> so, uh, life's too short. <laughs> and um, so, I'm going to try now and pick out from the book 64 some sonnets that might, you know, make for some interesting uh, reading, readings by my colleagues here. So, the first one is 
about in the voice of a man called Archibald Hamilton Rowan. And I'm actually going to read this. That's, you can see them getting very worried there, saying, he didn't tell us about that one. <laughs> and um, this is uh, Hamilton's godparent. And you think, yes, godparents are good. It's a good thing to have. This sort of people who give you money at Christmas and stuff like that. This godparent, in effect, ruined the Hamilton family. He uh, was the employer of Hamilton's family, a father, Hamilton's father. He was a United Irishman, wealthy landowning class, but a United Irishman. He'd been picked up by the British authorities before 1798, put in jail, and he used the time in jail to, to invite in other conspirators into the cell to, to discuss the, 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 the revolution. And they, well, the authorities got wind of that, and so they decided they were really going to hammer him. So he had to get out of town, had to get out of jail, and he broke out of jail and went off on the run in America and other parts of the world for 11 years, 11 years. So he uh, uh, had to be funded when he was away, and the way he was funded was Hamilton's father borrowed money to keep him on the run. And he also worked to get him a pardon, which he did. And so when this man came back with his pardon and took up his, his, his inheritance, and Hamilton said, Hamilton's father says, and the money? And he said, what money? And reneged and didn't pay. And so Hamilton's father had to go bankrupt. And as a result, his children were all sent off to different relatives. And Hamilton, young Hamilton, ended up in Trim, being taught, being raised and taught by his, his uncle. So, it, so, as I say, godparents don't always uh, do, the, do the business. So, I'll read this. Who fears to speak of 98? Not I. I did my bit, converting Killalay. They said I got off light, no gallows high. I tricked my jailers, hence my odyssey through France, America and Germany. Eleven years of hand-to-mouth exile. But then, thanks to the crown's short memory, recalled to life back in my emerald isle. Oh, what a night. Great bonfires lit the sky, for after many heads were slow to mend. Young Hamilton did well. I can't think why they took so hard against me at the end. The boy? Ah, yes, you know he bears my name. In that, at least, he'll have his share of fame. But in fact, it was William Rowan Hamilton who became the famous one, rather than Archibald Hamilton Rowan. So, that's got us, at least got us started. I'm always very nervous on the first, the first one. So, the next one I'd like to uh, introduce to you is uh, someone who may have had some sort of indirect influence on Hamilton's decision to be a mathematician. And this occurred when he was relatively young. And his name, the person's name was Zira Colburn. And he was also known as the Calculating Boy. He was an American from Vermont, and he uh, could do these extraordinary mental calculations uh, involving vast numbers and do them quickly. And uh, so his father obviously thought, well, we're on to a good thing here, here's a chance to make a bit of money. And they put him on the stage. I mean, it's the sort of thing that you, you would be prohibited from doing nowadays. But, uh, so he toured around and he came to Dublin. 
he was uh, put up against, uh, he would put, issue a challenge to people, you know, come on, take me on, you know. And uh, Hamilton was one of the people who, who rose to the challenge. But unfortunately, he did, he did okay, but he didn't win. So to read the sonnet, please welcome Noel Duffy. Sarah Colborn. How many minutes since Christ went to heaven? What are the two prime factors of, say, 4, 294, 967, 297? All air, the seconds' hands will mark a score. They build me as the calculating boy. What cogs and wheels were wearing neat my crown to entertain street traders and viceroy? I almost met my match in that drab town. I cared nought if I never understood exactly how I did it, whereas he was interested less in magnitude and more in finding methodology. I see him living well into his pension, computing Christ's velocity of ascension. Don't encourage him. <laughs> uh, in fact, that is one of the calculations that Hamilton did. Was to, uh, unfortunately, it has not been verified yet. Uh, so uh, I'm still out on that one. So, next up. Ah, I got a little bit ahead of myself there. All right. So, I mentioned to you, uh, Sarah, uh, Catherine Disney, and how heartbroken... Uh, he was over the, the fact that he couldn't marry her. He, um, this is something he carried with him for many, many years. And, and he, when he would meet people, uh, new people, particularly women, he would tell, pour out his heart to, to them the, about how, how he was uh, uh, so much uh, overcome and, and couldn't, couldn't, couldn't think properly because of this uh, heartache. And one of these... Um, uh, so he, hadn't, he wasn't allowed to see her. Um, and in fact, she had moved away from town when she got married. Um, and then he got his job and as, at Dunsink as the astronomer. And as part of that job, he had to go to Armagh, where there was also a, 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 a telescope uh, facility up there, an observatory there as well. And it happened that the same Catherine Disney, now Catherine, Catherine Parlow, was now a resident in Armagh. So there was a kind of a meeting, and of course it was a disaster as well. She came to the, um, to the observatory, and they were left alone in, the, in, the, in the, the viewing room of the observatory. And he was so excited and so overcome that he managed to break the telescope. <laughs> so, so, anyway, to um, basically... Uh, to tell that story of that event, there's another woman, an older woman, called Lady Pamela Campbell, and she was one of the confidants of Hamilton. Uh, and uh, she turned; she's an interesting person herself. She's the daughter of Lord Edward Fitzgerald, uh, who had been uh, who had been uh, killed in the, uh, during the 1798 uh, rebellion, but she still managed to stay within the moneyed classes and, and uh, marry marry the. Uh, a, a lord, another Lord Campbell. So she is going to basically tell her story in the voice now of uh, Paula Murphy. 
How fortunate for all that young Adair should have him as a tutor and a friend. We in our ma were swiftly made aware of his poor heart that still refused to mend. It seems she lived now in our neighbourhood, and he had paid a call, for good or ill, to find her sorrowful. But was it good that she should visit him on College Hill? His offer to show her the instrument brought them alone together in the dome. He broke the eyepiece wires in torment. The lady would have better stayed at home. I pride myself that my attentive ear could give his anguished soul some little cheer. My impression is that uh, uh, Lady Palmer also told him, look, stop moping about it and get out there and find another woman. So he did set out and he met up with this woman. Ah, now you see that's not really a woman at all. <laughs> it's a pair of gates and uh, unfortunately the woman, Ellen de Vere, uh, I cannot find, yet find any picture of her. But that's the picture of the gates of her, her home place. A place called Curra Chase, which is in near Adair in, in County Limerick. And uh, by all accounts, Ellen de Vere was a fairly spirited uh, uh, young woman, loved a bit of fun, liked to tease the, any suitors. And um, she, uh, at one stage, in conversation with Hamilton, said to him, uh, Oh, no, 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 I couldn't possibly live anywhere else except in Curra Chase. Meaning, uh, up the ante, you know, I, I put a little throw out there, you know, you come back with me with some sort of better offer and we, we'd see how we're getting on. But Hamilton was still so much uh, on the floor over at Catherine Disney that he said, oh, okay. <laughs> so, <laughs> anyway, in later life, she, uh, Ellen Devere uh, wrote about this incident and indicated that if they, if they had a bit more outgoing she would certainly have taken. So again, could we ask Paula to read Ellen de Vere? Dear Lord, but what a piece of work's a man. What theorems and equations say he should infer from one remark a whole life's plan and never ask directly where he stood? It's true I did say that I could not live contentedly apart from Courage Chase, but could the goose not find the words to give a girl the chance to row back with good grace? And as for Dora Wordsworth and her rant that I was too much wrapped up in my brother, her purse capacity was much in want to write thus to Eliza as another. In any case, he struck another match, and all may judge who was the better catch. <laughs> A uh, couple of extra pieces there. Uh, Dora Wordsworth is the daughter, of course, of Wordsworth, and they were, the, the Wordsworth and Hamilton were very f close friends. Um, and she was having a little bit of a, a go at uh, Ellen de Vere. Uh, Eliza is uh, 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 the sister of Hamilton, and uh, very close to Hamilton, the sister. And so the... Uh, uh, the um, the, the idea that, and in fact, if it's, it's an interesting in that century. If you read the correspondence between brother and sister, in that in that century, it's very. Um, it's, in our modern listening, we would sort of say, "God, that's a bit suspicious." 
uh, but it seemed to be just the normal way that brothers and sisters, I hated my sister, but brothers and sister, uh, and she me, uh, seemed to basically treat each other with this extraordinary uh, affection. Anyway, so uh, that's the, uh, that's his, uh, basically his second chance at, at love gone. Just wanted, just to finish on this one, uh, he did stay friendly with uh, Ellen Devere, and in fact he was able to use his influence later on to get her autograph of Coleridge, because she was very interested in poetry. So that, that was his, his signal effort. All of this time he was working on his uh, mathematics, and he had a major breakthrough in the area of optics. And um, to, this is the thing that I'm going to talk about next. And the man involved is called Humphrey Lloyd. And he was a, a, a professor in Trinity. He was a kind of a, an experimental professor, whereas Hamilton was more theoretical. And Hamilton made this theoretical discovery that there were certain crystals that if you sent a beam of light through them in a particular direction, it changed into a cone of light, yeah, and emerged as a kind of a, a, a hoop of light. And nothing like that had ever been seen before, and it is quite an extraordinary thing. Even today, to see it happening, it is quite an extraordinary thing. But of course, it was only a theory. It was only a theory. So he had to find somebody who would, uh, who would, who would actually uh, do the experiment, verify it. So he goes to Humphrey Lloyd. And so here is a latter day, Humphrey Lloyd. Humphrey Lloyd. I'd read his tour de force, System of Rays, but unlike him had missed the satisfaction of proving, proving a biaxial display, the marvel that is canonical refraction. Immediately he's tugging at my sleeve, demanding that I do the measurements. These theories, these theorists mistakenly believe that pen and paper make experiment. At first my sam sample of aragonite was much too thin for decent separation. That it was mackled added to my plight, but Dolan's crystal saved the situation. I did it, but it was a close-run thing with Erie and some others on the wing. Uh, in a sense, Lloyd could feel uh, quite aggrieved. Uh, Hamilton got a knighthood and a royal medal for this work. Uh, Lloyd got, thank you very much, <laughs> Mr. Lloyd. <laughs> but they were good friends, they were good friends indeed. And uh, Lloyd subsequently became provost and college. So, in, so, in some sense, I think, you know, with that sort of success, he could face into the idea of. of marriage again or looking for a marriage partner and he settled on a neighbour out near where, where his uh, uncle was and this is a woman called Helen Bailey and probably she was the wrong sort of woman for him uh, she was very quiet uh, she was very deeply religious and she was often unwell and um, so it's not clear to me that the marriage was entirely successful. However, um, I sort of see her as somebody with a, quite a bit of 
go in there, a bit of you know, determination, at the very least to set the record straight. Because she has issues, clearly has issues. Uh, none of Hamilton's friends liked her. Some of them didn't even believe she existed, because so they would go out to the Dunsink, and, and uh, there was no sign Helen was not to be seen at all. Uh, she also um, basically uh, was very much aware that Hamilton still had a, a big thing for Catherine Disney. And guys just can't hide that sort of thing, you know? <laughs> they really can't. So she wants to give out a little bit about that, maybe more than a little bit. And then she also wants to say, well, you know, I was there for the big moment. I did everything right and I was there for the big moment. So could you please then welcome to read the, sem the sonnet for Lady Hamil Helen Hamilton. Uh, we now have her uh, again. A lady, yes, but still without a carriage. Long treks to Dublin at a walking pace, and there were always three souls in our marriage, or four if you count Missy Currachase. <laughs> I knew about the whispers behind backs that I was just a phantom of a wife, my absences the focus of attacks, as if my presence could enlarge his life. But I was witness to his darker days, a genius, yes, but still a child half grown. I weathered his precocious wants and ways and gave him three strong children of his own. And I was midwife when, against the odds, he brought forth his canal bank set of quads. Um, so uh, I mentioned to you that quaternions didn't uh, exactly, uh, uh, everybody didn't welcome them. Uh, in the mathematical community, but those who did sign up for them really became messianic about it. They really, they really did get very, very deeply involved in it. They were the sort of mathematics that seemed to seem to take over people, people's lives. And this is, next one is one of the uh, one of those defenders of quaternions, and his name was Peter Guthrie Tate, and he taught for a number of years in Belfast. He was, I think, originally Scottish, but he taught in Belfast. He's a sort of man, if you met him in a dark alleyway in Belfast, he was, he was sort of a, was like, think, say, if he said to you, quaternions, you say, you bet. <laughs> <laughs> so um, he, uh, he, he, he went on the warpath. Um, one, one of the reasons, and, and it kind of, it's kind of an, irony, an irony, really, quaternions can be split up into two things called uh, a scalar and a vector. And Hamilton, in fact, did did suggest those names, and, but it was the vectors that kind of took over, and so the vector men were uh, out to out to get the quaternion men. So, to give you some sense of what Mr. Tate was about, uh, maybe we could ask then Noel to come back. Professor Peter Goodfrey Tate. Well, yes, I do suppose I was the Rock, his first disciple, loyal to the end. When others gathered round to cheer and mock, mine was the unsheathed sword raised to defend, an effort that was never well repaid. His toing and froing would make an angel vexed. My own book of examples was delayed while he rebuilt Mount Tabor out of text. The vector men laid siege to that high peak, so many self-proclaimed Hyperians 
His sneered quaternions were the unique and natural way to treat quaternions. In times to come, I barrack each poltroon. Quaternions will take us to the moon. Um, well, Hamilton was getting old, older now, this stage, and uh, not necessarily wiser, I guess, but uh, he'd become quite religious. He'd been involved in um, a number of um, skirmishes with the, uh, what's called the Oxford Movement. This was a movement, uh, some of you may know the name, John Henry Newman, uh, where people in the Anglican tradition were thinking of maybe moving back towards uh, Rome. Uh, and he flirted with that for a while, but in the end he didn't jump, he, although a lot of his friends did. And he, um, so he became quite uh, involved with the church and became church warden in, uh, in uh, Castlenock, near, near Dunstink. The Archbishop of Dublin at that time was a man called Richard Whateley. And Whateley was, was out to scour <laughs> the, the diocese from any sort of... Uh, uh, wrong thinking. And it turned out in Castleknock in church there was a window, a devotional window that had been paid for by uh, a local wealthy woman. Uh, and, but there was a problem with this window because it had Roman symbols in the window. So Whitley they demanded that, uh, that Hamilton get rid of the, uh, the window. He managed some sort of compromise which involved putting a piece of board over part of the offending window, and, uh, but it did seem to somehow or other uh, catch a, a moment in, in, the, uh, in the life of, uh, of in Irish life, uh, and at least in the, in the Anglican community at that time. So we're going to, I'm going to just basically read this one. Uh, it should be written in the sacred texts that Protestant archbishops have no friends, Caught in the middle of the warring sects, or from evangelicals to popish trends. He was initially one of the first, but then fell under Coleridge's sway, and shortly after found himself immersed in Newman's tracks and almost gone astray. But age and sense prevailed. In all events, as warden of the church at Castleknock, he cleansed the place of Roman elements, the pelican sent to the butcher's block. He keeps a painting of the Virgin Mother, though some say it's a likeness of another. In fact, the, the, the business with the painting is really, it is, the suggestion is that the painting looks like Catherine, and that's why he kept, he kept it, indeed. At this stage, things had not gone well for Catherine. Uh, she had uh, attempted suicide and only for the fact that she managed to drop the file of laudanum that she was consuming, uh, she would have been dead. Uh, she basically wrote to Hamilton, saying, by the time you get this, I shall be dead, the usual heartache. But in fact, she wasn't, and she lingered for another five years, uh, but very, very unwell. So... Um, what happened uh, next, in some sense, of course, is that they, he, um, uh, well, two, two things happened. One, I, I suddenly realised I've just missing, missing something. 
Yes. So his still life went on from in some sense, and uh, the next person who comes to mind is this person here. And this is uh, Lady Jane Francesca Wilde, the mother of Oscar Wilde. And this is a most unlikely pairing, Hamilton and Lady Wilde. But they were from the same sort of class and same sort of religion, but unlikely in the sense that uh, uh, Lady Wilde was an a rabid, uh, rabid uh, nationalist and Republican even, and had caused all sorts of grief in, in by writing inflammatory articles in the nation uh, for which other people were sent to prison because nobody could believe that a woman would write such terrible things. And uh, so they were... Uh, but anyway, maybe the poetry. I suspect a little bit of chemistry as well. Uh, so, because... Uh, interesting lady, uh, what... Uh, in fact, uh, the, uh, she asked, uh, she asked uh, Hamilton to be godparent God, of young Oscar. Now, whether he looked into the future, <laughs> <laughs> or more likely, he didn't have the money, and you need to have a bit of money to be able to give the gifts, you know. So he said no, anyway. Anyway, to hear uh, uh, the uh, story of, or the part of the story from Lady Wilde, Paula again. Speranza was my pen name at the nation, and when they read my call to armed aggression, poor Gavin Duffy faced incarceration, the court unwilling to heed my confession. But that was some six years before we met. My husband knew him. After we had dined, I asked him to be sponsor when we'd wet our little pagan's head, but he declined. A feast of poets held in 58, on Shakespeare's birthday, April 23rd, we gathered at Dunsink to celebrate in laughter, music, and in spoken word. Although he was an out-and-out -out high Tory, he laboured, like us all, for Ireland's glory. So the, the, uh, the, the last uh, remaining years then of Hamilton's life, uh, Catherine, Catherine died... Uh, and, uh, and in fact, it's a very poignant sort of scene uh, where he's allowed to go and see her just as she's dying, and he's allowed to spend five minutes alone with her, and he presents to her in the bed his, uh, what all he has to give her, which is a 700-page book called Lectures on Quaternions, <laughs> which, <laughs> which if, it, if it had fallen, fallen on her, it would have finished her off completely. <laughs> But it is it is poignant, and uh, and particularly the, when she dies within, uh, I think, a week, matter of a week after that, then he has to go back to the house and rescue his correspondence with her, because he had kept a kind of occasional correspondence with her, forbidden correspondence, and uh, they uh, they had to be got out of the because she'd kept the correspondence in her bed, and that had to be got out of the house. To, for fear of scandal. So that's nearly the, the end of, if you like, of the story in, in that time. Uh, of course, there are, there are a few uh, other details to be filled in. But I just want to leave you with uh, uh, one, two, one, no, just one, because we've had enough, I think. Uh, but uh, and this is the following. Schrodinger, two, two. And that's, uh, Schrodinger is, of course, if we're now out of the time frame. We're now in the 20th century, 
But Schrodinger really is the person who brought Hamilton back to life in, these, in a way in this country. Uh, he was the one who insisted that we have the commemoration. And because he knew all about, first of all, about quaternions, but also about other aspects of uh, Hamilton's work, which became incorporated into the so-called Schrodinger equation, probably the most, one of the most important equations in the world. So I'll just run through that very, very briefly. I'll just mention the first thing. Um, when Schrodinger got set up in the, in the, in the Dublin Institute of Advanced Studies, he gave a lecture on causality, and you know how one thing should follow from another, which seemed to suggest that there was no God, basically. That's what, and he didn't really, he, wasn't, he doesn't have a Christian viewpoint anyway. So uh, there was another professor at the, at the Institute who, in Celtic studies, and he was talking about a man called Palladius, uh, who was a, a missionary as well. And uh, Brian O'Nolan, the satirist, he wrote this up in the paper and said, what a great institute this is. Its first fruits appear to be that there were two St. Patrick's and no God. <laughs> so, uh, uh, but he, anyway. So, anyway, Chuck Hamilton. Chuck is the, the house. Chuck Hamilton. Our happiest of days, among a people wonderfully odd. That's when O'Nolan linked our first forays to write of two St. Patrick's and no God. He is perhaps the ghost in the machine of quantum physics with his clanking chain announcing the analogy between mechanics and optics. First to disdain, commutativity, reformulation of energy and systems large and small. He is the hitch in Schrodinger's equation and hence the Dr. Fatter of us all. Teach Hamilton as well the stars above unless perhaps in elements of love. And of course Schrodinger would have been completely the opposite in terms of <laughs> he, his, his interactions with the women of Ireland were considerably much more uh, forceful and uh, energetic than uh, Ham Hamilton's everywhere. Um, so I'm just going to leave you with one last uh, little uh, picture. And, uh, but before I do that, I do really want to thank enormously Paula and Noel for doing the, the bulk of the reading here. It's been wonderful. Um, and this is the following. The Mystery Woman. Now this is obviously a bit not the Mystery Woman. <laughs> this, this is Eamon de Valera. Peter Guthrie Tate was a great defender of, of Quaternions. So was Eamon de Valera. And uh, apparently he used to, when, when he was in the Oros, he used to telephone uh, the mathematics department in Trinity College when he had a particularly knotty problem in the area of quaternions. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, they, say, they talk about the way poetry makes nothing happen, maybe mathematics makes nothing happen, but I think that connection between de Valera and, uh, and Trinity helped in some way, certainly didn't hinder the fact that Trinity had to come to terms with the new state in some way, and it did. So I think that was part of it. Why am I telling you all of that? Well, really, because there's a, the book is mostly about uh, poems that I have based what, what I have written, as they say. Although I haven't really written them, I've really stolen them from the people's lives. But if you read, get to get your, your hands on a copy of the book and get to the very, very end of the book, the, the appendix, then you find that there's something very odd there. 
and it's this. No, you can't, can't read that at all. <laughs> but you might just about make out the very, very bottom here the uh, signature. And you might argue that it, you know, if it looks like a poem and it quacks like a poem, then it probably is a poem. It is. The title, if you probably can't read that, but the title is My Best Girl, My Best Girl. And this was written by De Valera in, uh, I'm exactly sure exactly what, what date I should know, but when he was uh, in prison in Lincoln Jail in England during the War of Independence. And uh, the prisoners, the Republican prisoners, had a journal, a prison journal, called, uh, well, it's called The Insect, but fair enough. <laughs> and all it was was a little... Uh, uh, school copybook, and they would write things in it and then pass it around and everybody would contribute, read and write sort of thing. And uh, they had a poetry competition and the, the theme of the poetry competition was My Best Girl. <laughs> well, when you get to read the poem, <laughs> you suddenly realise that it's basically a thinly disguised paean to quaternions. And the running, there's a running sort of end of line, indented, second, every second line is the word quaternia. So there's this woman called quaternia, a mysterious woman <laughs> called quaternia. That, uh, uh, and um, so uh, the, uh, and the last line, the last couple of lines, I think I know them, shall thou and I, beloved, find the means to smash algebra into smithereens. Yeah. And you can imagine the, the MI5 or MI6 or whoever they were <laughs> saying, let's get Quaternia in here quickly. <laughs> so, anyway, that's it. There, uh, I've given you, I think, was it 10, 10 sonnets? There's another 50, 54 waiting for you <laughs> in the hallway. Yeah. Thank you very much for your very good attention. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Dublin City Public Libraries and Archive podcast. To hear more, please subscribe on iTunes or SoundCloud. You can also visit our website, dublincitypubliclibraries.ie, and follow us on Facebook and Twitter.